several periods in history as a renaissance or rebirth of classical learning. There's the Carolingian Renaissance, an effort under Charlemagne in the early 9th century to gather Europe's finest scholars and to educate the clergy. Or we might point to the 12th century Renaissance, the High Middle Ages, which gave us Thomas Aquinas and some of the world's greatest sacred architecture. Of course, when we say Renaissance, we are usually referring to the age of Petrarch, Pico, Michelangelo, Erasmus, Shakespeare, and many other luminaries of the 15th and 16th centuries. But perhaps we should add to the Renaissance list the movement happening today in K-12 education around the country. Spreading across the country is a model of education rooted in the liberal arts, the cultivation of wonder, and the pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. This model is generally referred to as classical education, as it draws inspiration from ideals of learning advocated for by the ancients and amplified in the medieval university. In order to explore what classical education is all about, I sat down with Bobby Goodrich, the National Faculty Talent Manager, that is, Chief Faculty Recruiter, for Great Hearts Academies, a system of tuition-free classical charter schools educating 18,000 students in Arizona and Texas. Bobby Goodrich, welcome to The Permanent Things. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's start with uh, just some basics on classical education. What sets classical education apart from the model of education that dominates K through 12 schooling today? Yeah, it's good. Um, I think you know one of the things we're we're careful about is uh, overly disparaging of the, what's public or what's not classical or what's not who we are. Uh, I think you know we were quite aware of the fact that good teaching is good teaching no matter where it happens. Uh, what I would say is that there are um, differences in incentive uh, in, in the way that we uh, value what goes on in a classroom uh, in terms of <clears throat> what can be quantified, what can be tested, what can be um, repeatable versus the, the more human aspects of education, the more relational aspects of human edu of education. Um, we would say that you know an education isn't necessarily uh, like Plutarch says a, a mind to be filled, but a, a fire to be kindled, right? Uh, and so uh, while we're really interested in, in the teaching of things, uh, of ideas, of uh, dates and places and people, and, and all of the things that go along with a modern education, we're also really uh, aware of the the broader kind of moral obligation that goes underneath education, right? That that what you think about a thing. Uh, should mean something about how you act and how you live, uh, how you relate to the people around you, how you live in community. Uh, what you think about a friend, right, ought to change the way you are a friend. What you think about love ought to change the way you love people. What you think about justice ought to think about ought to change the way you live in your community, right? Uh, and so our education is uh, intended uh, to convey those facts and those ideas, but also to to draw our students into consideration of the larger concepts that that surround them and the context in which those have meaning. 
Yeah, that, that's interesting because, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, well, classical education, they're over there, they're, they're reading Homer and Virgil and being imminently impractical, right? But, but what you're saying is there's, no, there's, there's a real sort of lived element in this education that in some ways it's more practical than right. what we usually do. Yeah, I, you know, I think we describe our education as, as, a, as a humane education, right? One that is keyed into and aware of and not afraid of our humanity, right? And that the questions and the curiosities that drive us uh, are worth considering, they're worth time uh, investigating and chewing on and thinking about. Uh, and, and not that we have a specific set of answers that we necessarily want our students to tend towards or to come up with, but they need to be equipped to do the wrestling, right? They need to be equipped to, uh, to come to an answer, right? As, as they're structuring their lives and building out their future, uh, what will animate the choices that they make? What will animate the way that they interact with others? Um, if, if we don't have those questions underneath, if we're not thinking about those, um, we end up living in a way that's that's reactionary, that's uh, unthoughtful, um, that is uh, you know just kind of beholden to the demand of the day, uh, and we're not able to continue to 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 be intentional about the way we structure our lives. Yeah. We want our students to be able to do that. So in uh, in the Pythagoras, Plato asks, you know, can, can you educate for virtue? Mm -hmm. Right? You you would say. Yes, right? Yeah, it's a, that's a complicated answer too, right? In the sense that <clears throat> we would not say that you can teach somebody virtue, right. right? We would not say that you can teach a person to be courageous right. or that you can teach a person to be just. What you can do is you can create an environment in which they are exposed to courage and exposed to justice, in which they are kind of pushed to consider a just or a courageous response, right? They can build the habits of thinking th courageously and justly, uh, and then and then you you hope right that those start to to build anchors into their lives and in the way that they live, uh, and you expect that that will bear fruit as it moves forward. Um, but, but yeah, so that's we, we aim towards virtue, yeah. right? But we can't we can't hand them virtue. That's the difference between education and a a simple training. Right. 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 These ideals of of meditating on on on. Uh, truth and goodness and beauty and, and, and spending your educational experience doing that, some might think of that as a kind of elitist enterprise, right? Um, but uh, you know, I don't get the sense that's how you approach it, right? So, so would you say anyone could benefit from a classical education? Yeah, I mean, what we would say is that if we really have a sense of what it means to be human, yeah. and there is an objective level reality to what it means to be human, then there are better and worse ways to educate a person, right? Uh, and that we would say that our form, a classical form of education, is one that, that speaks to and draws out the humanity of our students, uh, of all students, right? Uh, and that the, the application there isn't that they would have a specific set of skills that they could then go and apply to a specific occupation, but that they would be equipped to live a full and robust and thoughtful life no matter what occupation they find themselves in, right? That they could be, um, you know, an auto worker. They could be, uh, they could work in a garden. They could work in, in an academic lifestyle. They could do any number of things, but, but in the context of that, they're able to be thoughtful about who they are as an individual and why they're doing what they're doing. So in, in some ways, is, is it fair to say 
Yes, you're you're educating them for their eventual employment, but you're also educating them for their for their leisure time. You're educating them for their communities, right? So you know, I I, I sometimes hear uh, uh, people trying to inspire educators by saying, "Think you might be educating the next Steve Jobs, or you might be educating the next." Uh, uh, president, but I was thinking, well, I'm educating the next somebody's mother or somebody's father or right. somebody's friend, and I don't know, is it isn't that more important in a way? Yeah, yeah that's a great way of putting it too, uh, in the sense that you know, uh, for one, I think we would resist a, a hierarchy of vocation, right? Yeah. That that uh, being a politician is inherently better right. uh, than being a stay-at-home mom, yeah. right? Or, or being, you know, the next president is inherently better than than being, uh, you know, a middle school classroom teacher. Um, <clears throat> what we would say is that uh, the value from an education is that that person contributes in their location as best as possible, right? That they live a humane life in relationship to the people around them in the context of their vocation, uh, and and. It doesn't really matter where that ends up being. Speaking then of, of location, right, of where you are, can you give us some background on Great Hearts Academies, how, how yeah. this got started and where it is today? Yeah, so we started in Phoenix, Arizona uh, with one school and a little under 200 kids uh, around 2004. Uh, we are now in Phoenix, Arizona. We're in San Antonio, Texas, and in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We have uh, 31 schools. We serve a little more than 19,000 kids, and we have uh, about 14,000 on our waiting list. Mm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have any sense of what, what's growing, I mean, what's fueling that growth? Yeah, I think the more that I do this work, so my job is to go out into the country and to meet as many kids as possible uh, and try to convince them to consider uh, working with us at Great Hearts, right? To consider a, a vocation as a teacher with us or, or on our, one of our campuses in some way, right? Um, and, and the more that I start to interact with families just out in the world who have no uh, real latent connection with classical education or our kind of niche of the education market, uh, the more I start to see that actually folks already know what we do in a sense, right? Because, because there's because of who we are, we expect a type of education that, that speaks to us. And we're aware that, that a lot of strands of education out there now are missing something, yeah. right? Uh, and so uh, whether they can articulate that as, as a fully formed kind of pedagogy uh, or, or whether it's just a sense of, um, man, I'm, the, the education my kids are receiving, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of beating them down rather than inspiring them, right? It leaves them frustrated rather than hopeful. Uh, it, it leaves them kind of just trying to get through it rather than, than craving to be around it. Um, you know, when we kind of settle into this idea of, of school as something just to survive until you can get out and really live, you know, uh, we're aware that, it, that it's not giving us what we need, right? It's not designed to uh, fulfill those basic human desires, yeah. right? Uh, and so yeah. I think as people become aware of who we are, uh, there's this sense of 
uh, yes, right? You, finally, it's something that has been put into words of what I felt all along, right? And, and a kind of baseline resonance with what we're doing uh, where I don't, I mean, I don't have to convince folks that we're a value. Yeah. They just have to see it. Right. They just have to be around it. And they know that that's something that, um, it, that they want their kids in, that they want to be a part of in some way. Yeah, that, that's interesting because that, that there seems to be a connection there between sort of how you appeal and also what what you do, right? right. So, so a classical educator is much more likely to present the poems of Robert Frost or the paintings of, of Michelangelo uh, on their own terms, right. right? And 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 sort of not feel like you need to say this is valuable because. Right. Right, but there is a, a sort of an inherent value there that w when you present it, people see it. Right. right. No one, no one goes to the Grand Canyon and sort of asks what well, what's the point of this big ditch. Right? right. We understand there's there's a beauty there that we're in awe of. Right. And the same thing seems to be true. Um, you know, uh, in the classroom, right? When when you present great art, right? And so, in some sense, I guess I'm I'm asking, is that an advantage that mm. you know you really don't have to convince people to come to you? You just have to show them what you do, and it's it's its own argument. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, we would say that the the great art and great music and great literature are great not because they. Uh, they were some form of kind of high culture and uh, everybody, you know, coalesced around them and decided that that was valuable. Uh, and the right kind of gatekeeper got behind it and said, yes, that's right. And so everybody in society said, okay, we're going to go learn that, right? Uh, but the great art and literature and music are great because they touch something in us that's human, right? They, they, they offer us the ability to uh, connect with something bigger than ourselves and yet also uh, not not more than ourselves, right? That, that we are, we resonate with literature, not because we can identify the theme uh, and, and the characterization and trace out the five basic plot points, yeah, right? But right. because literature is profoundly human yeah. uh, and we, we relate to the humanness that's in there and the struggle and the, and the epiphany and the value uh, that, that we find in good pieces of literature. Um, and, and it, it kind of puts us back in touch with that part of ourselves that we tend to lose sight of in, in this really busy and loud world that we're in. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because, you know, the, the utilitarian and its instrumentalist approach, just that, that frame of mind dominates yeah. our culture, right? And, and everyone will, you know, most people will speak in, in those terms if you ask them, you know, what is school for or what, what is anything for, right? It's always an instrumentalist sort of answer. But what, you, what, what you're suggesting, and I think what the classical phenomenon in education suggests is that give people a chance to step outside of that framework and they'll take it. Yeah, right? that's right. That when, when we spend, uh, you know, all of a fourth grade year having students read selections of a text yeah. because in that selection you can identify author's voice or intent or you can work on a particular grammatical structure or you can uh, learn uh, you know you can work on spelling words or, or whatever whatever else that you're using the text to do um, 
you you have you've destroyed that moment. You've destroyed that experience of the text. And that's not to say, right, that grammar and and structure and all those tools aren't necessary ultimately for us to really begin to understand what a text is saying. But if we're not constantly being faced with with the whole thing, right, the text as a full experience, um, it's no wonder that it's not it's not exciting. It's no wonder that it's not inspiring. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've found th things like grammar, or, or I teach poetry, so prosody. Right. Right. When you start with those things as as the reason you're there, students are rightly bored. Right. They're not. They're not interested. When you start with beauty, and then work in the other direction from there, then then eventually they can see the beauty of grammar, right? right? The beauty of a well wrought sentence or the beauty of prosody, right? The beauty of a good metrical substitution. Right. But if you just tell them to care about syntax or to care about metrical substitutions, well, why should they, right? right? right. Uh, so so I, I, that model makes a lot of sense to me. And apparently it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people because again, you know, classical schools are, are cropping up everywhere, right? right? There, this is uh, um, a rapidly growing educational model. Um, many of those are, are private schools, right. but Great Hearts is a, a charter school. So can you talk a little bit about you know, the advantages of operating as a charter school rather than on the private model? So as charter, what, what we get to say and mean it, right, is that uh, a classical education is a classical, is an education for everybody, right? Mortimer, Mortimer Adler said the best education for the best is the best education for all. Uh, and and we're, we're able to operate in a sphere that we can, we can say that that's true, right? We're not, we're not self-selecting our students in a way, right? We're not um, ensuring uh, through testing or tuition that that our, our students who come are already kind of pre-primed to be successful in an environment that would be kind of an argument you could make against classical education if that was the only environment that it existed in but but where we are right in, in the public sphere uh, we get families who who know what classical education is and want to come be a part of it we also get families who just want something different and they don't know what it is and they couldn't articulate it and they just they just need their kids to be loved mm -hmm. in a way, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so they'll come, and, and those kids, just like their kids who come from, you know, families that prize classical education, they're just as successful. Yeah. They grow just as much. They, they derive just as much benefit from that kind of an education. And so the fact that we... Um, there's a there's a there's a very democratic movement of that right there's a sense in which we can we can make our education available with as as wide a net as possible uh, as as uh, broad a road in as possible uh, to us that that feels like a moral obligation right to be able to do that um, if we were to uh, kind of be content with a, a structure in which only a select few could get through I think we'd feel like we weren't actually pushing as hard as we could, and we weren't actually serving in the way that we could. To speak self-interestedly for a moment, you're doing places like OBU a big favor, right? Because uh, you're catching those students who may not know that's what they're looking for, and and but once they get a taste for it, then they're more likely to find their way to a place like OBU, where we're going to to read the great books and have these conversations, right? Um, but you know, it seems to me the 
wonderful thing about classical school is that that catching them early, right? right. Um, because it is it is a lot easier to um, nudge a student's disposition toward truth and goodness and beauty before most of the world has told them not to care about it, right? right? Um, so I guess what, what, what I'd like to ask uh, in conclusion is sort of how can we return the favor, right? So, so what's the best way for liberal arts colleges, right, places that have an investment in the great tradition and, and knowledge-seeking wisdom to partner with classical K through 12 education? Yeah, for us, I think the biggest step is is uh, send us your graduates, right, to come <laughs> teach in our classrooms. Uh, we hired uh, 447 new teachers this last season. Um, this coming year, as we expand yet further, we're going we're looking to hire close to 650, uh, which which I try not to panic over. <laughs> um, but but. We have 14,000 kids on our waiting list. We could almost double tomorrow, right, if we could find the buildings and the teachers uh, and, and, and find folks who were already in some ways uh, aware of the, 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 the value of an education for its own sake, who didn't you know, necessarily need to be convinced of that, um, who had some uh, baseline training and, and awareness of the kind of core texts of our curriculum. Um, that's not to say that you can't do this type of education if you don't have any background in it. Uh, we, we get folks who change careers all the time, you know, who, who uh, got launched into this or that and decided that it wasn't satisfying. Uh, largely in some ways because what they thought of as education uh, coming through it and then also in the way it's kind of popularly presented uh, really wasn't, wasn't intriguing, wasn't interesting, right? Uh, and, and so they never considered being a teacher until they encounter our network and school, schools that do education like us and they think, oh, wow, that's a whole different world than what I expected. Um, so, you know, for us, continuing to build relationships with schools like OBU, uh, where, where your graduates have come through um, a, a curriculum and a scope, a scope and sequence that prepares them to step into our classrooms well, uh, and not just by what they know, but by by what the, who they've been become and how the formative character of those colleges. Uh, you know, we're we're constantly in need uh, of folks who are willing to do that, even if it's only for a short time while they figure out what else they want to do. Right. That's a great sort of cycle. You're forming students, we're forming students, so uh, that, that partnership makes a, a lot of sense. Yeah, and you know, if you just think about it also in the sense of um, the impact that our teachers have in students' lives, yeah. right? Uh, if, if those students want to know where their teachers got their training, Right. They, well, OBU sounds like a great place that I'd like to go to and consider as my education. Right. So there's there's a there's a kind of symbiosis that happens there as well that we're we're more than happy to to be a part of. Right. Well, thank you. Um, if people want to learn more about Great Hearts Academies, where where should they go for that? Yeah, uh, you know we have a we have a website uh, www.greatheartsamerica.org that is a really great landing spot for who we are and what we do. Um, you know, I'm happy to share you know through whatever show notes or whatever my my cell phone number, my email address. If folks are interested in, in reaching out, they're they're welcome to do so. Uh, this is my job, right? Is, is talking to folks about what Great Hearts is, and so uh, I'm happy to have those conversations as well. 
Hey, well, thank you for talking to us about great art. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.